We had a uh, lot of news has spoken this week about the overturning of Roe. That's the first time in my entire lifetime. Uh, Roe was, I forget what month, but it was 1973. I was born in January 1975. So I'm 47 and a half years old. And these are the first couple of days in my whole lifetime that, that's, that this country has experienced that. And in those nearly 50 years, there have been, I've heard the number, 63 million children aborted. This is a, this is a complex topic. The church has long been a promoter of life and pursues that right. And so in that sense, we rejoice. Yet we're aware that this is a culturally violent topic. And I bring that up just to say, while we're watching these events unfold, it will take wisdom for the church to navigate these cultural season that we're in. It's going to take some wisdom. It's going to require us to display the fruits of the Spirit, to be slow to speak, quick to listen, slow to become angry, to navigate what it means to be like many, arguably most of our brothers and sisters, in the history of the church, that have lived in fallen, corrupt, broken worlds where everything is redefined and things that are based on God's created order are denied or twisted. But we want to handle that carefully. And so we're in a season where we need to wrestle with that. And maybe that's some conversations we can have, I would assume, some of you informally, but even formally as a church, what might it look like to think through what it means to live in this day and age. I don't think that's going to be easily stated. We need to be thinking about this in the months and the years to come. I just wanted to acknowledge that as we started this morning. So I'm going to pray for our time in the Word now, but I'm also going to ask for the Lord to give us wisdom in this cultural moment as we seek to be faithful and fruitful, not only as citizens in our own country, but also as citizens of a different country in God's kingdom. Let's pray. Father, as we come to your word in, in the context of our day and age, we're, we're just aware of all the complexities happening around us. And the news channels and the radio talk shows filling our eyes and ears with all the conversations happening in our culture. What's it mean, Father, for us to be a prophetic voice, citizens of another kingdom, promoters of your common good, when it's so divisive and political. Give us wisdom, Father, to navigate these moments. Even as we pursue the goodness of all created life, help us to navigate this wisely, humbly. Father, guide your church, not just ours, but the church, all brothers and sisters and numerous different traditions that also want to honor your word and declare your gospel. Be with us now as we turn to Scripture to receive from you this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to no fault of my Sunday school teachers at a nearby free church in which I was raised in, I probably learned more about the Ark of the Covenant from Indiana Jones than the Bible. And again, not blaming my Sunday school teachers. It's not a topic that comes up a lot. It just isn't. But if you watch uh, Indiana Jones, then I, you'd be hard-pressed to find any 
any of us who haven't at least heard of it, if not seen it. I don't know if that came out in the 80s. I, I remember, I was, certainly was a kid when that came out. But uh, in that movie, one of the plots of the movie is this Ark of the Covenant, which is a powerful resource to be utilized as a weapon of destruction for a people group. And you're really not having to kind of scour far to find that as a narrative, because to be completely honest, it's exactly what you're seeing in 1 Samuel 4. So any kind of concern you have about uh, the writers of Indiana Jones modifying what the purpose and identity of the Ark of the Covenant is, they're simply copying what God's people did long ago. But we need to see that. But before we even get into the primary part of our text, I wanted to note the very first phrase or two in the beginning of verse 1. We might have blown by it, but actually the, the first part of verse 1 is finishing the story in 1 Samuel chapter 3. God had been rejecting the, the priestly ministry of the family of Eli and had been assigning that ministry role to Samuel. And even the end of chapter 3 notes that. It's not in your notes, but I'll read it. Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him. There's, there's a, the Lord was present with him. And he let none of the words fall to the ground. And all Israel knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared and revealed himself to Samuel. And then we get our verse and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now, the chapter divisions and verse divisions were not inspired by God. In fact, the, the comical story of a guy named Stephanus in the 15th century, some have argued that he was riding on horseback when he was doing divisions in the New Testament. So every time there was a bump, you probably get an odd break somewhere. Whether that story is true or not, it is clear that in some cases, those divisions are in slightly odd places. Because that, 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 that first phrase of verse 1 really goes with chapter 3. But I just wanted to, just, just a moment, pause on that and note that that's a theme, even though that's a little transfer of God, ministry assignment in this Old Testament, that theme runs through Scripture and ends in Jesus Christ. And that theme is that the Lord always provides His people with a faithful minister, a faithful priest. The Lord has clearly rejected the priestly house of Eli, but before removing them, he raises up a new faithful priest and prophet in Samuel. Even that language at the end of chapter 3, the Lord was with Samuel, present, the word of the Lord. Again, that is God's grace. That's his presence. You're going to see the presence removed in this text of the ark being removed and God's judging removal of his presence. But that theme of Samuel being a representative and a minister of God is significant. And we just need to see that. Because it was in the story of Samuel, as you've been hearing these last few weeks, that God took what was weak and shameful in the eyes of the world, a woman who was barren, which in the ancient world is, is the most horrific form of shame. And he took this barren womb and he gave her a child. And that child was the one through whom he would do his work. 
And man, if that doesn't wink through the Old Testament into the story of the New, where you see this young woman who is with child, and this young child, the prophets say, would not be in any way attractive to the world. He would not look in worldly terms like a king or a ruler. He would be shunned by his own people. He's even depicted as a lamb, which is harshly a fierce animal. And yet he would dominate and recreate all of creation because he's the one through whom God would work. So I say that so that we're learning to become readers of Scripture in the details in light of the bigger story. We're always seeing how those themes are present. Or even that God is creating these offices of prophet or priest or king, and guess who ultimately fills all those offices? Jesus Christ. So even though that seems like a little throwaway few verses, or maybe just in the story a little transfer of power and authority from the house of Eli to this man named Samuel, just note how in the larger story of Scripture we're seeing that theme that weaves all the way through that we see Jesus is ultimately the one who makes God present, who ministers His Word in and for us, and why we gather even today, and specifically today, in His name. Because he is the representative of God that he has provided to us. Well, when we turn to the rest of the chapter, you could really break 1 Samuel 4 into two parts. Uh, all the way down to verse 11 is this theme of Israel against the Philistines, and they go to war. Not a lot of detail is given. The Philistines were a vicious people living near Israel. It was always a battle for some prime real estate. To be honest, it still is. And that prime real estate was always for shipping and trade and military protection was a battle, and the Philistines wanted this base. So Israel went out to battle, end of verse 1, against the Philistines. And the two sides had their encampments. And the Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and they went to battle. And Israel is defeated. And the text says at the end of verse 2 that about 4,000 men died on the battlefield. And look at verse 3. This is a key verse. How does Israel respond? Well, they initially respond by asking the right question. When the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel, right? So those are the spiritual leaders. Those are the governing leaders. These are the leaders of Israel. They gather together, and this is the question they ask there in the middle of verse 3. Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? They were very well aware, and rightly so. It was not just, well, we didn't use the right swords. It wasn't just a military tactic. It wasn't just a human thing. They clearly see that this is the doing of God. But rather than using that as a lens to look at themselves, to ask some questions, right? I mean, this is literally right after God made his presence known, the word came through Samuel. Like, God is clearly still covenanting with his people. This is after the Exodus and the Ten Commandments. In fact, that's what the ark is. The ark is the presence of God. The ark holds the covenant Ten Commandments. Instead of looking at themselves, they looked at strategy. Because look at their answer. Well, here's what we should do. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, and it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. See that word power there? They think it's just they need a better weapon. 
They were using the Ark of the Covenant as a tool for their own gain. It was a way of gaining what they wanted. Brothers and sisters, please hear this from this text. God is not a thing to be used. He's not a tool for your benefit or your success. He is holy and completely other. And the moment you use God like a tool, you got another thing coming. It is not the Philistines you should be worried about. It is God himself. You cannot collaborate or borrow God's holy, sovereign protection. He is not a cosmic butler or a divine therapist. He is not. He's not an app. Type it in. Hey, bring, bring the ark. Type in the ark app. Here we go. He's not a lightsaber or a catapult or a nuclear bomb. He is holy. You don't borrow God's sovereign perfection. You just respect it. This action of theirs, this decision, verse 3, there's a turning point. They see it. The Lord defeated us. Instead of repenting and being broken before Him and looking at themselves, they wanted to utilize the Lord. It was a continuation of their selfish appropriation of God's merciful extension to them. God had extended him, His person to them. He'd given them rights and authority, and they totally used it for their personal gain. And you know what God will say to that? You'll have none of that. I'm not your plaything. What's remarkable is the contrast between the Philistines. So, so keep reading with me in four. So the people sent out to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant. And, and I love this depiction in verse four. Like verse four is already telling you how silly this is. First of all, listen to the l- depiction of the Ark of the Covenant. Rather than being some like military plaything, this is supposed to be a sacred place eventually put in the Holy of Holies in the temple that nobody has even the right to enter into. The people went to Shiloh and brought from, brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of hosts who is enthroned on the cherubim. Like the text is wanting you to know, how silly does this look? You're taking this holy sacred object as a, as a military weapon. It's, it belongs to the Lord of hosts. Like of the angelic spiritual beings, this is not a toy. And worse than that, there was probably some kind of little ceremony enter in. And who was at the head of it? The two lovely sons of Eli, who the text, when first introducing them, calls them worthless. But there they were in some marching procession with the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. Now, now, listen to this scene, right? As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded, right? So like the people have been shepherded not to revere the Ark and God's sovereignty, but to be glad that they have that power on their side. You ever been at like Soldier Field with 60,000 or 70,000 people shouting at once? Doesn't happen enough in my humble opinion, but it'd be nice to have that a little more. But you ever been in a stadium and you just hear everybody yelling and you almost think you cover your ears? Because it's just, it's like, it's like deafening. It's so loud. So imagine this ark coming in. You've got, I mean, 30,000 more about to die. There's thousands of people there. They're shouting because they're like, we got the power. We got the power. So the text, only way the text has to describe it in ancient idiom is it's like the earth shook. Well, however far the Philistines were, they could hear it. Look at their response. 
And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, what does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they heard that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, they probably had their scouts on some cliff or overlook. When they heard that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. And they said, oh, God has come into the camp. They don't even know who he is. Note that. A God has come into the camp. Woe to us. We, we don't use woe language. We, we'd say, we're goners. We're done for. Bible language, woe to us. For nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? They don't, they don't know. Is it one God? They don't even know. I mean, their belief system would have been there's numerous gods. They don't even know the true God. Notice the contrast. You've got the people of God who know him and don't treat him rightly. You've got the people that have no idea who he is that fear him like crazy. I just note that contrast. The people that literally know, like the, the, the Ten Commandments, the covenant revealing of God is literally in the ark. And God's own people are trying to use him with no respect for his power. And then these people that know, is it one God? I don't even know. Does he have a name? I don't know, but I don't like it. I'm scared of him like crazy. Remember the language of woe? Have you ever heard that before in scripture? You have. The prophet Isaiah, when he saw the throne room of God, when he said, when he saw the Lord, almost like the Philistines, except he knew who he was, he said, woe is me. When he saw himself before the holy God, he didn't say, yes, now I've got power. He says, woe is me. Now I see my brokenness before a holy and mighty God. So notice that painful but important contrast that we see in the text. Israel knew who God was, but they did not respect him. The Philistines totally respected him, but had no idea who he was. What is the reader supposed to see? This text shows us the deceptiveness of the human heart, even for God's people. If we are not careful and guarded, we will take our covenantal privilege, our access to God's person, our our participation in his power, and we will make it its own idol for our own gain. We will turn it into our faith in God and his work on our behalf. We will turn into some kind of form of superstition Some kind of magical power that bends to our wills and meets our needs. And look how easily this happens when the leaders of God's people themselves fail to honor God. Do you see the prophets or priests saying, do not shout, don't even bring the ark here. It's not about a tool or a weapon. It's not about getting the divine butler to come to our aid. It is more than that. Have we not heard what the Lord said? Did we not hear what he told our forefathers? from the mountain and through the prophets before us. Brothers and sisters, we need to make sure God is at the center of our lives and the life of this church. We need to be willing to receive our suffering and losses as means by which God breaks us and teaches us to trust in and submit to him. And you know that impulse. When something doesn't go your way, it is tempting actually just to get angry at God about it. To blame him in some capacity. 
and not be willing to look at ourselves and to ask those hard questions or just to live in the brokenness of our world. But we, we, we may not be the prosperity gospel Christians that are expecting a Lamborghini in the garage and flying in the Learjet, but we have a truncated version of that so easily when it just becomes the divine butler cosmic therapist God, where it's about getting me healthy, getting me wealthy, giving my kids opportunities. It's basically a baptized version of the American dream. And it's so dangerous. And it's no far stretch to say that is very similar to what we're seeing in 1 Samuel 4. Let, it, let us not be those people. We need to be people that lead lives that know who God is. Like at least the Israelites got that part right. But we need to be people that respect His power. Sadly, like only the Philistines got right. Oh, it's not pretty. God is not a tool for our use. That first half of the text ends, verses 10 and 11, with the sad report that there was a very great slaughter. 30,000, 30,000 people died. Imagine that battlefield. That's 34,000 people in just a short period of time. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, they're dead. The rest of our text this morning is explaining the context of this judgment. And you can even see it in the text itself. Look at verse 12. It says, A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day. Little context. That's not a half a mile jog. That was 18 miles. Who would have volunteered for that in this room? 18 mile run. They ran all the way back. But notice how he's dressed. Sometimes the Bible teaches in words, sometimes in deeds. With his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. That is the symbol of mourning. He would have ripped his garment because he knew that. That is a clear declaration that this is God's judgment. Like if they didn't learn it with 4,000 dead, how about 30? Got the lesson yet? You don't play with God, he says to his people in this text. And the rest of the story is not easy to read. He comes across Eli, who can't even see, and nearly a century old, who gets the news not only that both of his sons are dead, which was promised by God in judgment in chapter 2 of 1 Samuel, verse 34, but also that the ark has been taken, which for them meant their power, their privilege, and God's presence. The ark is gone. The text emphasizes this. this. The ark, by the way, becomes this little theme that runs through these next couple chapters. The ark is gone. The sons of Eli both died on the same day as God judged priorly. Eli himself dies, literally in a graphic way, just falling over backwards and being gone. And the generations of Eli are interrupted and covered in shame. Like, the, like God promised, like your family's done. And look at how it ends. Literally around the same time, Eli's daughter-in-law is giving birth to a son. And she names him Ichabod. 
And it's literally a statement, where is glory? Like she hears of the death of her husband and her father-in-law and the ark being captured. And even in the text, it's the ark that's the emphasis. Again, it's the glory of Israel. It's national pride. And she names her son Ichabod, a name of shame. But even then, what was Eli's daughter-in-law concerned with? Was she concerned with God's glory? Or was she concerned with Israel's glory? Even in her language, she said, very last verse, verse 22, the glory has departed from Israel. She's concerned with herself. Eli's daughter-in-law made it about herself and her people. God's glory wasn't threatened. God doesn't base his glory on your or my success, what we can do. His glory is beyond what we can see and understand. It's not attached to us. What is this text wanting in this concluding part to teach us? I think it's this. It is just as important for Christians to understand God as judge as it is for them to understand God as Savior. Some of that is just defining God properly. Like, He's not a plaything. He's not like the Philistines think, just some kind of one of many superpowers in the world, and He's not like the Israelites think, which He's just, He's my superpower or my butler. We cannot minimize the holiness and the glory of God. But, but, but to worry that God as judge threatens the understanding from the Bible that God is Savior is to misunderstand. They're actually both necessary. Proper understanding of God as judge helps us to find the gospel. The saving work of God only makes sense in the context of his wrath and judgment. Like it's when we realize that he's a holy God where we're, and we cannot meet his standards and we experience the reality of God as judge that we can appreciate and see the need to accept God as Savior. That's a, it's a weird, difficult tension, and probably a lot of us kind of err on one side or the other. The, those that err on the side of God as Savior can be the, the, the libertine view of the Christian life and feel no pressure to honor Him as King or acknowledge. And we just kind of live in this hyper-grace mode that sees no place for law. The others that feel Him as judge so much kind of lose the Savior part, and we can live like legalists. And we're always fighting to honor God, and we never are able to. But the biblical perspective is the same God who is the God of judgment is also the God of salvation. And the beauty of it is that this God, the King, who demands perfect allegiance, actually died in your place for you. What a fitting image of the crucifixion of Jesus. And even while on the cross, notice, He's wearing a crown. Like, notice that. Even on the cross, he's wearing a crown. In this sense, then, by understanding God as both Savior and Judge, in that biblical tension that exists as we navigate that, it properly directs our lives. Jesus is not merely our Savior. He is also our King. That's what that word Lord means that you see used over a hundred times 
in Paul's letters, for example, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're just sounding so used to that Bible language that we might miss it. You know what it means? It means king. And here you have the apostles, right? Remember reading through some of the letters of the apostles in the New Testament? And they've given all this privilege. Like they were like personally selected by Jesus, three years in ministry, given the office of apostle, which is a pretty big deal, ministering around the world. And yet when they refer to themselves over and over again, they always call themselves slaves. Because as much as they knew that Jesus was their savior, a giver of good gifts, they never let that leave their sense of identity so they didn't also see him as king. So there's that healthy Christian life, the Christian walk with two legs. The one walking leg is Jesus as Savior, and the other walking leg is Jesus as Lord, and both of those are needed to sustain a Christian life that understands who he is, and the grace, his goodness, but surely respects him equally and at the same time. And that's our challenge. It's a challenge to live in our world today in a, in, in, a, in a context of an American dream culture that has infiltrated everything. It's been baptized by many people in and around Christian traditions like ours. That we fight to make sure that we see God as not our servant. God is not our magical power, but He is simultaneously both our Savior and our Judge. Let's pray. Father, we come before You. We thank You that through Your Word we get to know who You are, like Your people in the Old Testament. And we ask You to help us, protect us from falling into the same error that they made of diluting their knowledge of you for their own personal gain, to make you a divine butler or cosmic therapist. Lord, may that not be us or our church or the churches that we join with in ministry in this community. Protect this church, Father, from that. Protect our own hearts to not make ourselves at the center and you an accommodator to bless us in the ways that we see fit. Help us to rightly appreciate your saving work, but see that is rooted in your work as king, and to hold that balance properly. Father, we ask for you to minister to us, even this week, to appropriate the truths from this text to our lives. And we thank you for your goodness to us through Jesus Christ, who is not only our Savior, but also our Lord. And we pray all this in His name. Amen.